Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and from BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Today on the show, Lyft is going public with massive mounting losses, and Facebook is yet again facing backlash over its handling of private user data. BIV's weekly tech panel is on today, and they're going to walk through both of those stories. We'll start the show, though, with a look From a policy perspective, at Canada-China relations, this comes as detained Huawei CFO Meng Wanzhou heads back to court in Vancouver this week. BIV has launched a new series called BIV Talks. It's a series of editorially driven events. Kicking off this new series of events is two very relevant options. We have one on surviving the real estate slump that's coming up on March 26th and one on the 5G dilemma coming up on March 28th. You can register now and get more information on those events and others at BIV.com events. You're listening to BIV Today. Canada has approved extradition hearings for Huawei CFO Meng Wanzhou, who will appear in court in Vancouver tomorrow. Her detention was the catalyst for a series of events, including detentions of Canadians in China, as well as cancelled trade trips. Sarah Pittman is a policy analyst with the Canada West Foundation, where she compiles the foundation's regular China brief. She joins me now on the line from Calgary to discuss where Canada-China relations rest today. Sarah, thanks so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Would you say relations remain as tense as they were today as, say, where they were when Ms. Meng was first detained? I would say probably. Uh, it certainly hasn't gotten any lighter. Um, it's maybe been talked about a little bit less because not a lot has changed lately. But um, no, I don't think the the leaders are going to be having um, friendly conversations anytime soon. Now, give me some context to this. Does an event like this really set Canada back in terms of our policy engagement and our relationship with China? Or is this something that a year or two from now, we might be able to look back and say that was just a blip on the radar? Well, that's a tough question to answer because we haven't really dealt with something like this before with China. Um, of course, we've definitely had our ups and downs. Our countries have a lot of um, differences, and that sometimes makes relationships complicated. But this level of animosity, I wouldn't say is something we see often with China. Um, so I'm not entirely sure what it's going to look like. But I think since it has dragged on since December, so now that we're in March, that's a few months now, that it's more than just a blip. Um, and this will drag out for a while. And I think to your point that we haven't seen something like this before, it might be that uncertainty that's fueling some of the tensions around this. It's new ground. It's uncharted territory to a large extent. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I think a lot of the worry, especially in Canadian media, is we don't really know what's going to happen. Uh, China economically is a lot more important for us um, than we are for China. And so I think that's where a lot of the worry comes from. It's been a few months, as you say. Is it too early to say whether this has cost us anything? I'm thinking maybe of the broader symbolic, diplomatic, or even economic consequences. You know, I'm not sure. I think it's difficult to tell yet. Um, In terms of economics, we haven't really seen um, major impacts yet. There was a story that broke this morning that potentially uh, could be an economic impact, Um, although I hesitate to say that it is for sure yet. Um, China has halted canola shipments from Richardson International. Um, mm. Canola, of course, is our biggest export to China by far. Um, 
And it's there's some people who are starting to say that this is because of the tensions. Um, I'd like to see a little more information before I jump to that conclusion because there isn't really a lot there. Um, but if this were the case, that could be um, that could hurt our economic relationship for sure. In terms of politically and symbolically, I think I think we're gonna have to wait a few months and see uh, when the dust settles a little bit where we stand. Fair enough. There have been several stories. Uh, it was several weeks ago, or maybe a couple of months ago. Now, Canada Goose shares tumbling and everyone attributing that to tensions between Canada and China. Is it really too early to say or attribute things like that to any one particular thing? I'm I'm trying to figure out maybe what might be hype and fear and uncertainty and what might actually be real impacts. Uh, You and me both. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I remember hearing about the Canada Goose and then a few weeks later, I was reading a story in the New York Times about the lines going around the block to the Canada Canada Goose store in Beijing. Uh, so it's really difficult to see um, on the ground, um, like between regular Canadians and regular Chinese people, it really doesn't seem to be having that much of an impact. Uh, I think you wrote the story uh, a few days ago about the record um, sales out of the Port of Vancouver, and part of that is growth of um, sales to China. So that is definitely a good sign, although that may have more to do with the China-U.S. trade wars than anything we're really doing. We're just kind of the next source that they can get things from. Of course. Um, So the difference between the hype and what I'd love to be able to tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. Looking south of the border, of course, there are U.S.-China trade talks ongoing. President Trump has promised a deal very soon and that it's going to be big. Again, maybe a bit of an issue there trying to figure out what might be hype, what might be real, and what ultimately might be part of a deal like this. But how significant would you say is really any kind of deal between the U.S. and China? Oh, it's quite significant. Um, Of course, these are the two uh, largest global economies, two largest economies in the world. And um, that puts a lot of of things at stake, not just for Canada, but for everybody else. So if they were to actually work out a deal and be able to work with each other nicely again, if you will, um, that could provide a lot of stability to the global economy. So that's huge. But on a just on a Canadian perspective, we seem to find ourselves in the middle of these two countries. There are two big biggest trading partners. We're also geographically in between them. Um, so if they were to work out a deal and things were to calm down with them, that would be great for the world and for Canada. Mm. There are stories too about should we have seen rising tariffs imposed on Chinese goods from the U.S.? Canada would have been the recipient of a slice of that trade that gets diverted around the world, the EU, Japan, and Mexico also stood to benefit. We would miss out on that in theory if we see tariffs head the other way. But is that overall a more positive thing for a country like Canada, maybe sacrificing what would have been a short-term benefit for really longer-term stability? Yeah, I think so. There have been some benefits to some sectors, like soybeans, for example. Uh, China consumes a lot of them, and so they've been getting them from other countries like Canada. Um, But I think Stability is more important. The benefit to Canada um, for stability versus the small gains in a few sectors is is a significant difference. So stability is is far more important, I would say. You mentioned that we're between these two superpower countries when it comes to trade, even when it comes to this Huawei detention issue. What does that mean for Canada as a smaller player? How does it then have to maybe revisit how it engages both the U.S. but also China? Well, I think there's been some thoughts around that in the last maybe year or so and with 
the signing of the new NAFTA, but also with the latest tensions with China. Uh, I think because we're such a small player, um, we want to rely on countries as little as possible. So, I mean, diversification is the name of the game. Um, so we rely a lot on the United States and we're starting to rely more on China. And part of that was diversifying away from the United States. Um, but because we're such a small player, we can really get sucked into these trade wars between China and the U.S. or other large economies. Um, and the best way we can avoid that is to, to diversify to other economies. Like Japan, for instance, it's a huge economy. It's one of our trading partners and we could be doing a lot more with them. So that's kind of how we can um, insulate ourselves from these these trade wars in the future. Mm-hmm. Has engaging with China from an economics point of view become an easier sell to voters here? We have a, a long and at times complicated political history between Canada and China. Is it still a challenge? Is there still fear there? Or is there maybe more of an openness or recognition even of China's economic importance? I think that would kind of depend on who or what group you're talking to. I uh, of course, I don't know all Canadians, so this is just my educated educated guess. But especially with the Meng um, situation the last few months, I would say it's become less palatable for regular Canadians to be trading with China. I mean, there's the human rights issues um, with the Uyghurs and all of those things. But on top of that, it, it feels a little leery. But at the same time, I get the impression from the business community that you know, China is not going anywhere. It's a huge economy and there's a lot of opportunities for Canada to prosper and grow while working with China. So it seems like there's kind of two different divergent points of views. So in the last decade, for instance, I would say there's been some leeriness, I don't know if that's a word, <laughs> between um, regular Canadians looking at um, growth, uh, trade with China, but um Regardless of the political situation, our economic relationship with China has gotten strong. We've exported a lot more to China over the last decade, um, kind of regardless of the political feel. In the weeks and months ahead, Sarah, as a policy analyst, what are you going to be analyzing? What will you be looking for to help you better understand our relationship with China? Oh, I'm going to be ooh, looking at a lot of things. <laughs> I think keeping an eye a lot on the economic relationship between the two countries. So the politics has been all over the place and it hasn't been great. But to me, a sign of the relationship still maintaining an even keel is that the economic relationship continues to flourish. Uh, I'm gonna, going to start to get concerned if, for example, there's less trade out of the port of Vancouver to China or this uh, stopping of canola shipments from Richardson International that I mentioned earlier, if that's really something that's going to be permanent. Uh, so the economic indicators, especially with NOLA and lumber and vehicles, which are our biggest exports, that's what I'm going to be looking at. Would tourism numbers also be maybe another oh, good yeah. indicator? Yeah. Absolutely. I know that's particularly important to British Columbia. And that, that's a huge thing for sure. Um, from what I understand, there's some companies are a little leery about that. And if it drops significantly, then yes, I would say that's a sign of a a, turn, a souring in the relationship. Sarah Pittman is a policy analyst with the Canada West Foundation. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the show with your insight. Thank you.
Lyft, Facebook, some new news from Tesla up for discussion today, as is whether AI-powered apps are making us smarter or whether they're making us less human. BIV's weekly tech panel joins me now in studio. Ali Pordad is the CEO of Progressa and Linda Fawkes, founder and CEO of Glue Technology Society. Thank you both for coming in. Thanks for having me. Lyft going public is one of the big news items this week. We also get a peek behind the financial screen and how well the company's been doing. But Ali, the company beat Uber to its IPO filing. Is that a surprise? Is this a race? Does this matter? It's it's definitely not a race. Uh, no, I don't. And I don't think it matters. It's probably between them. Maybe there's a little bit of pride on the line. But uh, I mean, I don't think either should rush to IPO for the sake of beating the other. You, you IPO when it's the right time for your business. Uh, it seems like, uh, with at least with what Lyft has released so far, uh, it looks like it's the right time. I mean, they have significant market share. Uh, there's a sig- significant story there. I think their market share is roughly 40% of North America, or maybe it's a worldwide market share now. So that's, you know, to me, that's, uh, that's a nice recipe for IPO. Uh, that translates to $20, $25 billion of revenue. Uh, or maybe no, actually, it's more revenue than that. I think that's their market cap that's twenty right. twenty five billion dollars. Two point one billion in revenue. Is that what it is? Yeah. So that's you know nine hundred million dollars in losses. That's gotta say something to you. It it yeah it does. What that what that tells me is they're probably expanding very rapidly. But I'd like to see what that loss uh, looks like year over year. I wonder if it's shrinking at this point as they as they go public. You know, are these companies that are going to turn the corner on profitability and be very uh, healthy, prof- profitable businesses in the public market, or are mm-hmm. they going to, you know, in, in, in perpetuity, are they going to be losing money? I suspect it'll be the former. Well, I got to say, when when you look at the numbers that they had to file, their ridership numbers, 29, or, or have dropped from roughly 20 to 30% down to 10% from 2016 hmm. to this year, or this filing uh, information. So they're, everything's slowing for them. Their ridership, um, their rider, rider numbers, sorry, and their passenger numbers are going from the high 20s, mid 20s down to the 10s, 11% range. So if they didn't file now, what would those numbers have looked like in another year or so? And and their laser focus on their transportation business. Um, we do cars. We're going to do scooters and bikes and uh, autonomous vehicles. Um, really sets them quite far apart from Uber. And I'm not too sure in a really good way since we're not making money ride hailing what is it four bucks a ride not a lot of money to be made there yeah Yeah. i mean uber uber is certainly um in the last year and a half reinvented itself quite significantly in the market i remember last year Haley, we were were talking about uber all the time and it was very negative it was very negative last year and probably even the year before um and that you know you you don't hear about uber in negative ways anymore they've Mm -hmm. really done it i think a good job under their new, new ceo to stay out of the limelight in a negative way and uh, and maybe that is impacting uh, Lyft from a from a from a market share standpoint. Although thirty nine, I mean the the article that I read this morning, thirty nine percent market share. If that's a worldwide market share, that's that's, that's fairly robust. North America, they're, they're North not America? worldwide yet. Yeah, okay. and and North America is kind of a fake number since it's only Toronto that they're in in Canada. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good point. That's basically just the U.S. It's the U.S. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so more room to conquer for them. And I wonder, to your point, Ali, there were hashtags around boycotting Uber. There were a lot of negative news stories. They're in the news constantly. And I wonder, to some extent, whether that was a good thing for Lyft that maybe gave them a chance to grab some market share. What do you think? I'm actually not – I'm surprised that there's not more competition in ride-sharing. You know, why why is there just Uber and Lyft in North America? Why not, uh, you know, why not – 
come in and have a third challenge. It's a great or a question. Fourth. I have no idea why there are only two. It's it's it, it, there was only one for a long time, right? Yeah, we really just had Uber for a long time. But. I mean, it seems like uh, municipalities have have brought those barriers to entry down. So I would think. I mean, not, I'm not talking about Vancouver, of course, but uh, <laughs> but, but uh, you know nope, the, the rest those are of, high. Yeah, yeah. the rest of the modern world. <laughs> well, um, I, I wonder if it's a financial barrier, Ali, given the losses that these companies have. Uber is going to be likely in a very similar financial picture. Though, yeah, but but these companies have scaled up very very fast. You know, if you come in with a uh, a technology, you invent, make make those investments. Uh, and you don't have such an aggressive scale-up strategy. I, I think these businesses have have the potential to make money. Uh, I, I'd like to see Uber's latest numbers. I'm, I'm actually, you know, eagerly awaiting those when when they file when they actually release the information, uh, because I, I suspect these companies at the, at their size now are they, they have to be turning the corner uh, to profitability. I mean, this this was a conversation if you go back decades when Amazon was uh, first going public. There was no end in sight to them turning profit tr- pro- profitable, but there is a there is a turning point for these companies that reach a certain scale. At some point, they will start to make money. And, well, and uh, Lyft is saying it's, it might not be for at least eleven years. That's what they're saying. Years. Eleven years, they're not going to be able to use some of those. Um, so that could make sense for Lyft because they're not outside of North America. I mean, if they're not, if they don't have a heavy presence outside of North America, and there's still a world domination ahead of them, then there's probably a large cost. Or investment that they have to make to recover to you know to recover their uh, their their investment, whereas Uber might might be a lot closer. Well, they're also saying though that the autonomous vehicles, the scooters, and the bikes are going to be where their revenue growth comes from. I'm not sure. Does that actually make up uh, a competable balance sheet with Uber? I'm not sure that it does. And maybe we're going to see as when Uber comes out that what these ride hailing companies need is more behind them, like transportation, the AI infrastructure that drives their data to make their Uber Eats programs, those sort of things, viable and, and um, useful for the consumer. So it might just be that ride hailing is not enough to make a company that ever is profitable, yeah, which we'll is see. which is therefore pretty important if they have a social mission that maybe they just fall back on that. They're the, the good guys transforming cities and getting cars <laughs> well, out of cities. Not only on a practical level has has Uber and Lyft changed the way North Americans travel. You know, there's a there's a heavy, heavily, heavy reliance on these companies now. Uh, now the markets are going to be, you know, they're going to be have all their eggs in the same basket. Yeah. So we'll see if, yeah. if these companies can can make it happen. Mm-hmm. That'll be an interesting one to watch, as is when we'll finally get these services here in BC. Still waiting on those. Let's move over to Facebook. If you've given your phone number up for Facebook's two-step authentication process, it's their security process, that number can actually be used in some capacity to search for users. And here's the kicker, Facebook won't actually let you prevent that. This is just another example. We talk about Facebook, it seems like, every single week, Linda. Are they apologetic at all? They I haven't think apologized. They're, they're yeah. on a 14-year apology run. Uh, <laughs> but for this one, they haven't apologized. And and the kicker is I spend a lot of my time talking to older adults about how to secure their online accounts. What is two-factor authentication? Why is it important? Uh, and it is important. And and uh, Facebook bug, bugged people to add it. 
We want you to have it on your account. We want it to be secure. Um, and now what we're finding is part of that push was to use your phone number as a data collection point to be able to track you within your Facebook world, to be able to connect you with people they want to connect you with, but also across their product line, right? Across WhatsApp, over on Instagram, et cetera. So they can, if you delete your Facebook account, we can find you elsewhere using this tracker ID. And it just undermines the security uh, of the internet to kind of make a bold statement. It also shows that Facebook yet again is clueless to what their consumers are saying. They simply, in my view now, they just simply don't care, I think, about what we think about what they do with our data. I um, I feel like, you know, wh wh where is the line? Like, how far is this going to go before before someone has to step in and, and almost force them to do something. And in this case, I mean, I think the answer is quite simple. They just need a full-blown security audit. Like somebody needs to come in, uh, an, external, an external party, and do a full-blown security audit on this company and just find all the holes and all the problems that exist in this infrastructure. It's too important an infrastructure for people yeah. today. And Alex Stamos, their CFO, their chief security officer, sorry, who quit yep. six or eight months ago, has not been replaced. And then wow. might, that might be a smart uh, financial move because clearly they're not going to take the advice of a chief security officer. So why pay for the position <laughs> to ignore the person's advice? It is, it is an audit is a smart move. And I think to Facebook's dismay, it may just be the government that steps in and says, okay, this is enough, is enough. But I think it's going to happen. Consumers are voting uh, with their data, with their use of the platform. Um, people are horrified that your phone number is available to everyone unless you go into your settings and lock it down. It's then available to your friends. You don't yeah. have an option to make it private. But the good news, I think, on that side is Facebook had your phone number anyway, probably, because so many people, when they create their accounts, upload their whole contact list without understanding what that means. This goes back to two of the most amazing acquisitions of all time with for Facebook. Cheap. Right? If, if, if they didn't acquire WhatsApp and Instagram, this this Facebook would not be what it is today. For I, a combined $4 billion, like I, the cheapest I, deals done in technology. Like I truly believe this. This actually reminds me a lot of what Amazon is today. Amazon, you know, has been able to rely on certain components of its business to actually carry the rest of it uh, through tough times, through losses, through you know quarter after quarter of just making investments in different types of things. I mean, remember the first time they were going into uh, into supermarkets and they were trying to put AI here, and it's just <laughs> the only reason these companies can get away with it is because they have these core business units that make them so much money. Mm -hmm. And Facebook, uh, you know, with Instagram and uh, and WhatsApp, you know, the market penetration of these companies and the growth that they're experiencing in Instagram still, it almost is masking. Like it allows them to sort of almost leave Facebook to become this legacy problem. And that's sort of how it feels right now. It's like they're not taking it seriously. Yeah, but what I found in, in the glue sector of the market, so the people born before 1964 roughly, is they still don't quite get that Instagram and WhatsApp are owned by Facebook. So they're using those apps in isolation, they believe. And that's a happy place for them. When they learn that WhatsApp is Facebook and that Facebook may be rolling this technology into the big blue F uh, logo, uh, they, they're saying, I want out. I don't want any part of it. I don't want to be any part of Facebook. So I wonder if if Facebook does distance themselves from the brands of Instagram and WhatsApp and try to create this unified Facebook communication platform, will that be the moment when everyone says, okay, no? 
that that could be the turning point, but I suspect that they'll try to stay ahead of that and maybe even spin out those companies. Oh, that's yeah. probably how they would do, they'll deal with it. They'll yeah. probably spin them out. That's interesting. If, I, if it ever got to that point, right? I, I would just spin it out, <laughs> or roll it in and keep them. Yeah, yeah. Either way, <laughs> do find a way around it. Well, I saw it wasn't even around this scandal. It was a scandal or two back. U.S. senators tweeting that there should have been more due diligence done on these acquisitions. That they should have been antitrust suits. Then now you have this big behemoth of a company that has a lot of power, that has a lot of data. But I don't know. Do you think, Ali, we would actually see a government step in? Is there a line that could be crossed that would get governments more involved than they already have been, keeping in mind that there have been hearings and there have been yep. government involvement to some extent? Yeah, I think it's I think it's going to happen. We're going to see it. Uh, we're going to see it in Europe first. And it's going to it's going to sort of I, I'm not sure Facebook's going to get broken up like Microsoft got broken up in the 90s, but but it will it will, you know, to some extent, some legislation will come in to stop these companies from sort of overexpanding the way they are and just buying wh- whomever they want. I think there will yeah. be there will be some oversight or some additional hurdles that these companies have to get through to make acquisitions of this size and and this scope. I think part of the problem with Instagram and and, and WhatsApp is they they made these gambles when they were actually quite small. The businesses were not that big. I mean, WhatsApp and Instagram were were a fraction of the size of what they were when Facebook acquired them. And I don't think anybody quite was thinking about the fact that you know, this this could be yeah. a problem in the future, right? Or or what the heck are they going to do with these two technologies? What what why yeah. is Facebook buying Instagram? Well, now we know what is it? Four billion images have been sourced yeah. through Facebook's AI from all of the photos up uploaded on Instagram for Facebook's AI to get smarter. So that was was that known by the Facebook team when they bought Instagram? Maybe maybe not. But I'm pretty sure government regulators would have had a heck of a time trying to figure out where this conflict would arise. Yeah, there's much more obvious conflicts uh, that are out there with much larger acquisitions, yeah, right? So it's yeah. really hard to put this oversight on smaller tech companies, especially Facebook, uh, when when they made these acquisitions, it, they were even Facebook was a much, much smaller business. Mm-hmm. So where is the line if your government, you know, are you preventing these businesses from growing? Are you preventing, uh, you know, sort of a true business environment and, and sort of leaving conditions for these companies to flourish? Or are you are you creating obstacles? And, and that's a very difficult line for governments. Agreed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And in the meantime, your data is already out there. So yeah. by the time yeah. If yeah. we see intervention, right, it's, it's gone it's and gone. maybe bought and sold several times over. Our next topic has to do with a Wired article that sort of poses the question whether AI-powered apps are making us smarter, whether they're potentially costing us our humanity by relying on, say, predictive email sentences as opposed to crafting it yourself. Cool. Is it good or bad, Linda? I know that's an oversimplification on the whole. Or should we treat this as some suspect or suspicion? Or is it basically good and beneficial? Well, I, I said cool because when you see the smart replies on Google, they're all making <laughs> yeah. us sound like hipsters. Yeah. I was going to ask if you're using it. So it sounds like you are. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I don't use it too much. I do have to say I do think the technology is pretty cool. Um, will we become lesser humans for it? We'll write more because of it. We'll write faster. Mm-hmm. Uh, we will send um, less you know, we, we will catch up on our email uh, probably automatically to people we don't care much about because the people we care a lot about, I'm guessing we're actually going to craft the words ourselves. Um, so I think the integration of AI into our writing world, into our world of uh, our lives with our devices is smart. It's not going away. It's only going to become more and more confusing and challenging and connected to us emotionally. It's uh, 
it's a crazy time. This this is the upside of AI is if it can actually make humans more efficient and make them more productive. Where the downside is is if it takes the humanity away. So that's the balance that. Yeah, but can you believe you can take a photo of a spreadsheet and import it into Excel and it becomes a live spreadsheet? I know that's a real geeky thing to say, but that is cool. It's incredible. It's pretty powerful. It is. My question on a little more serious note is, is there the risk that we lose some skills? So if you have, say, younger audiences, very digitally connected, using things like this, might there be literacy abilities at risk, Linda? It's like having a thesaurus the, even before you finish typing in the word. Um, I, I, I don't know if there's a literacy problem. I think that it may force our kids to use different words, which is probably good since sure. we're reusing the same words over and over again. Um, I think what I've seen with the um, augmented writing technology is they're al- actually trying to help you write um, better. Um, so helping you understand which phrasing to use, going deep into grammar in ways that we don't teach in school anymore, making sure spelling is a thing or missed, sorry, typos are a thing of the past. Grammar mm-hmm. errors are a thing of the past. Do I care that my son relies on technology in his university papers to catch those errors? I don't care. Yeah, no, I would agree. I would agree. I think, uh, even I, uh, I grew up in a, on, right on the, right on the sort of the world as the world was changing. And so, uh, I'm, ha- I'm sort of happy for my for my children to uh, grow up and learn how to write, but then also have a computer to mm-hmm. sort of make things easier for them. I, I I can see the benefit of both. I don't I don't think that um, I think one thing we all have to do is just determine what skills are what what skills we value and and then what skills we want to focus on with our with young children because uh, you know there, there's a lot of talk about well do people need to be able to write. Or people have, do people have like you need to be able to write if you if you, do you have to type or do you want to you know do you have to right what's and, more important <laughs> but what we're doing with writing is we're we're analyzing we're researching we're being creative we're connecting dots that humans connect and AI doesn't connect so well so perhaps these are um, these are areas our kids can be freed up to explore and not be focused so much on the Oxford comma but what about handwriting specifically. Well, my son does not know how to handwrite because they stopped it when he was in grade four. So he thinks it's like some Sanskrit text or something. If you actually join up handwriting and show it to him, cursive is that what it's called? I can't even remember the name. <laughs> of that's it. an interesting. That's an interesting point. So if that if that is if if they've stopped teaching handwriting, then they've determined that's a skill that's not mm-hmm. valuable. Hand, just, handwriting is you just don't need that skill anymore. It was a big uproar in our elementary school. It was but, like, why we're not going to learn how to cursive script? It's like, well, we don't need it. Sense because when you're don't typing, it. it's not typing out in handwriting. Yeah, exactly. Well, even from mailing letters, which I mean, that's been suffering quite a bit if you look at what's going on with Canada Post, but a handwritten letter is almost a thing of the past. You do see it, but a lot of times it's typed out. It just reeks of time. That person just has a lot of time. Just sitting at a desk, <laughs> handwriting note. I wish note. I had time to yeah, buy the stamps <laughs> to put on the envelope. Yeah. Our final topic, and this is new. It's a story just breaking today. Tesla rolling back its retail footprint. Linda, tell us a bit about this and the significance of this move. Yeah, apparently a public blog post saying, hey, by the way, uh, things are good. Look at the new $35,000 model that we're coming out with, and we're going to close our retail operations. So the lead that they brought over from Amazon to help sell more cars, I I imagine, was a big part of this. But um, it wasn't long ago that Tesla was talking about expansion of its retail uh, footprint Mm. to show people the new technology, showcase it in ways that people could pop into their local mall and see the cars. And now they're saying, we're going to pull all those stores out. We will have a few select stores in key cities, but we want you to buy through the app. We want you to buy your Tesla through an app. 
We will try to deliver it within an hour or the day. Ride it for a thousand miles. Keep it if you want. If you don't, return it within seven days. Yeah, I mean the market is it has had its eyes on Tesla for a while. Elon's got himself in a lot of trouble over the last year and a half, two years with SEC. Uh, so I think expectations are this company starts to turn a positive corner, and they brought on obviously some talent from Amazon and and elsewhere, and they're looking at costs. They 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 cut seven percent of their workforce uh, about la- I think early last month or January. And now they're focused on their stores, on the retail stores. And it makes a whole lot of sense that they can, uh, I mean, they're not, at the end of the day, they're not uh, vulnerable to having to shut the whole thing down. They have to steer this, they have to cut costs. Otherwise, if production can't keep up, they're, the math is not going to work. Yeah. And Tesla is a bit like a cult, right? This isn't when we go, we don't go to the auto mall and choose which brand we want. We're buying a Tesla for a whole lot of very deeply emotional reasons, it seems. So maybe it doesn't matter that you look at a picture in an app and get some sort of augmented walkthrough and hit buy, a $35,000 buy button. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It's not necessary. Well, there you go. Linda, Ali, thank you both for coming into studio and joining the show. Thanks. Thank you. So Linda Falk is founder and CEO of Glue Technology Society and Ali Pordad, CEO at Progressa. That's it for our show. Thanks for listening to BIV today. You can get notified of new episodes by subscribing to us on iTunes and on Stitcher. And we want to get the word out. So if you loved a particular episode or want to share the show, please do so via social media networks. You can tag us and find us there on Twitter, Facebook, and others. You can also listen to past episodes and read, watch, listen to more business news over at BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Thanks again for listening. 